If you are new with us, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, section by section, line by line, verse by verse. We started back in October of 2020. By God's grace, we'll finish before Christmas. That's the plan. (laughs) Some of you laugh. (laughs) We'll see. Um, The Gospel of Luke, as you remember, is... uh, Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, the word gospel literally means good news. And so the, the message of gospel is, uh, of Luke's gospel, is Luke's recounting of the good news of Jesus' life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection and what that means and why that's good news for us. In fact, Luke tells us at the very beginning of his letter that his reason in writing is to give certainty concerning the things that the reader has been taught or the reader has heard about the gospel. So Luke is writing so that you and I may have certainty in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this section that we're going to look at this morning is no different. Before we get there though, let me just give kind of a note of housekeeping. If you're a planner, um, this will be helpful for you. If you if you're a free spirit, you can just uh, close your close your ears for the next few minutes and you don't have to pay attention. Um, In the kindness of our elders and you all, we established years ago kind of a a plan by which the vocational elders every seventh year might have a sabbatical. And so not this coming Sunday, but a week from this Sunday after service, I will begin really kind of a two-month, a little over two-month sabbatical as a time of rest, as a time of some specific focuses uh, on some things that need to be done in terms of ministry, some goals educationally I want to drive at. Now, for full disclosure, this is not my 14th year, this is my 13th year. I'm getting out early on good conduct, right? <laughs> that's what's going on. No, um, as it, as it happened, next summer would be my 14th year, next summer would also be Pastor Nick Runlet's seventh year. And we thought it might not be prudent to have two vocational elders gone throughout the summer at the same time. And so we talked about it and discussed it, Nick and I, and among the other elders, and it just made sense for a variety of reasons, one of which being our oldest graduates from high school here next week, um, for our family to have sabbatical this summer and take it a year early. Um, And so just if you're wondering, if, if later you find out, well, this is actually year 13, and how dare he take a sabbatical early. And talk to the other elders about that, and because uh, they gave the thumbs up. A um, couple things, though, specifically that you would be praying about and praying for. First, pray for the rest of the elders this summer, specifically the brothers who will be preaching and teaching the word from this pulpit. Uh, the Lord has blessed CCF incredibly. Um, in that there are faithful brothers who can handle the preaching responsibilities of the word and can do that faithfully and with excellence and with clarity and with conviction. And I'm looking forward this summer to sitting under these brothers and the preaching and teaching 
of the word and even some of the themes that that they have put together. So Pastor Nick Runlet is kind of leading a, a mini-series through the one another's that will start here in June. Pastor Taylor's going to be preaching one of those messages as well. And then after that mini-series, we're going to spend the rest of the summer on the Psalms and, and just various elders will be preaching different Psalms. We'll pick up where we were last summer. And then when I come back in August, mid-August, um, we'll pick up with our vision statement. So six uh, weeks on our kind of core values as a church, and then we'll jump back into Luke. So when I said Christmas to be done by Luke, and you're like, well, there's not that much of Luke left, um, that's really why, because we're going to spend the summer away from Luke uh, after next week. So one way to pray would be for those, for those faithful brothers who will be preaching and teaching. The second um, way to pray uh, this summer is that God would continue to work powerfully both in this church uh, and in our family, that the Lord would just give us a good family to get time together. We're going we're gonna to be um, doing a little bit of traveling, but we'll primarily be here. And uh, I'll also be working to kind of finish some, some dissertation project writing that I really am behind on and need to get done. And uh, so you could just pray that I have the discipline to get that knocked out and that done. Um, and, and we'll be here. We'll be here a lot throughout the summer. And so we're going to take off the elder hat, but not the church member hat, which means we need one another. We need you and you need us. And so it's like when we're together and we see each other in the hallway, like we can talk, right? Like we're not trying to be incognito. We're not going to run away and hide for 10 weeks. Um, we we want to be involved and active in the life of the church as any other member because we're members and we're accountable to you guys and we need you and we need those relationships. So you pray for us. All right, that, uh, that aside, let's get into our text this morning. I've titled the text this morning, Warning, Readying, and Reminding. Warning, Readying, and Reminding. Let's pray that God would bless our time together. Father, thank you for your word, which is living and active. I pray now that you would speak your truth to us from your word. We are aware, and I'm, I'm keenly maybe aware more than any this morning, that without your help, without your precious Holy Spirit's work among us, this is, this is nothing but talk. So I pray that you would apply your holy words to our hearts this morning and teach us and equip us and train us and fill us with joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, I want to start by giving us a statement that I think will kind of help guide our time together. So this statement will kind of help capture what's going on in the text because verses 5 through verse 38, that's a lot of territory to cover. And a lot more than we usually cover on a Sunday morning, but I think it's important to cover this in one unit because I think there's a, a kind of a primary theme that Jesus is driving at, and I don't want us to miss that. And so I want to summarize kind of where we're going with this statement. Jesus is preparing his followers, we could add both then and now, for eternity by warning us about the things that won't last readying us for the hardships to come and reminding us of the superior worth of God's salvation. Jesus is preparing his followers for eternity by warning, you could maybe even circle or underline the word warning there if you're taking notes, about the things that won't last, readying, that's another key word, us for the hardships to come and reminding us 
of the superior pleasure or joy or worth of God's salvation. So that's going to kind of direct our time together. If you're looking for kind of a more detailed textual outline for our time together in these verses, I want to kind of give you two movements or two parts that we're going to look at this morning. So if you think about this as a play, part one and then part two, or a symphony, movement one, movement two, here's the first movement. We're going to call it the temple's destruction and the judgment of the Jews. The temple's destruction and the judgment of the Jews. And the second part, or the second movement, we will call Jesus' return in the salvation of the faithful. Jesus' return in the salvation of the faithful. So the temple's destruction, judgment of the Jews, Jesus' return, salvation of the faithful. All of this begins with a shocking statement from Jesus. Look at verse 5. Word of the Lord says, while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, we're not told the context of what's going on here. We're not told exactly who was around Jesus or who was talking to Jesus. But we do know that there were some comments made about how impressive the temple was. And the temple was very impressive. We know that Herod began construction of this temple about 50 years before this time. It was during the 18th year of his reign, and we know that within the first 10 years, the the majority of the temple structure was built, and the last 40 years was, was spent just adorning the temple with all of its beautiful features. We know that it was 172 feet long. We know that it stood between 16 and 20 stories tall at various places. So we're talking a massive building, especially for this time period. And right as the the people, the Jews, were ooing and aahing about how magnificent the temple was and how glorious it was and how it was so adorned with so many beautiful artifacts, Jesus speaks up in the midst of all of that. And at first glance, it seems like Jesus is the ultimate killjoy, doesn't it? Like, Like, oh, isn't this magnificent? Isn't this beautiful? And Jesus speaks up. And he says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now we might think, like, all right, Jesus, we know that your mission isn't to win a popularity contest. But really? Can't you let them just enjoy the beauty of the temple? You can imagine If you were standing maybe at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you were observing it, the beauty and the wonder and the glory and the majesty, you're you're standing before some sort of beautiful uh, piece of artwork. Or even in the last week and a half or so, we several of us had the opportunity to to be with our missionary family in France. And while we were there, we got to see a cathedral that was built, work was started on it around 1000 A.D., 
And then it continued for the next 400 years work on this cathedral before they were done. I'm thinking, we thought a year was long when we built the addition next door. Like 400 years, right? And it's glorious, 500 feet tall. And, and you would just stand and, and you would look at it and it would just take your breath away. It was beyond description of how beautiful this was. And then to think it was built a thousand years ago. And if in that moment, someone standing there in our group was like, you know what? All of it will be knocked down soon. They're going to tear it down and build a parking garage. I'd be like, really? Aren't, aren't we encouraging today, right? So what's Jesus doing here? Like, wh- why would he say this as people are admiring the beauty of the temple, this building that was designed to worship God? Remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is perfect. And Jesus knew, because he was perfect, that these people were not just admiring beautiful architecture, but they were putting their confidence and trust in the temple itself. They thought, as we've seen in Luke so many times already, that they would be saved by Yahweh because they were Jews and because they had the temple. In other words, the temple was a source of idolatry for them. They didn't love the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. They used this symbol of God's covenant as a substitute for obedience and worship. And so here, Jesus has no problem dismantling their idol. He has no problem showing that the very thing they put their confidence in would be destroyed which sets us up for the first movement in this text, which is the temple's destruction and the judgment of the Jews. Now the disciples or the the people around Jesus ask the obvious question when Jesus talks about how it will all be destroyed. They ask really two questions, when and what? Verse 7, teacher, when will these things be? And What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? They want to know when will it be and what will be the sign. And notice Jesus' response to them. He doesn't directly answer the question when. Instead, he addresses how they should wait. So in other words, the the crowd says, when will the temple be destroyed? And Jesus answers with, here's how you should wait. Verse 8. See that none of you are led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed? Jesus, here's how you should wait. Don't be fooled by imposters. Don't be terrified by unrest. Because the end will not come at once. Crowd, when will be the sign of the temple's coming destruction? And again, Jesus, here's how you should wait. So Jesus does give some indication generally about when the temple would be destroyed. Look at verse 10. He talks about international hostilities. Verse 10, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. 
talks about natural disasters in verse 11. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So he does address briefly some of the signs about when the temple will be destroyed. But again, like before, Jesus turns the answer away from the specifics about signs and instead focuses about on how they should wait. Notice he tells them, prepare for hardships and rejection. You will be called to give an answer for your faith. Verse 12, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. You're going you're to give an answer for your faith. Things are going to get worse before they get better. They're going to get harder before they get easier. Prepare for hardships and rejection. Also prepare to, prepare to represent Christ. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Prepare now. Don't worry in that moment what you need to say to outsmart your persecutors. And we know that this is exactly what would happen. In fact, if you've read much of the book of Acts, Acts is kind of part two of Luke's gospel narrative, essentially, the the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the book of Acts, we see over and over and over again the people of the Lord Jesus Christ suffering hardships and trials and the people of the Lord Jesus Christ called to give an account for their faith And it's a great reminder because the book of Acts is almost entirely taking place in the time period that Jesus is referring to, between when he says these words and 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. That's the time period of the book of Acts. In fact, just write down Acts chapter 4 and and go back and visit it later this week. But in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before the Jewish Supreme Court, so to speak. They have to stand in front of the the high priests and the leaders and the teachers. They have to give an account because they have been out preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the religious leaders are not at all happy about it. So they call Peter and John in to give an account for what they have been saying and, and preaching and spreading. I love Acts chapter 4 verse 13. Now when they, the court, the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Why? Because it was Jesus who was speaking through them, giving them the words to say. It was Jesus fulfilling the very things here that he said he would do. When he said, you're going to be dragged before leaders, you're going to be dragged before courts, and in that day, do not worry because I will be with you and I will give you the words to say. You will, some of you, even be rejected by family, verses 16 and 17. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Notice, you won't just be Isolated, but you will be delivered up, handed over by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You'll be rejected. 
You'll be hated by all, verse 17, for my name's sake. Verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. You may even die. Verse 16, but by your endurance in the faith, you will inherit eternal life. Verse 19. I don't think verses 16 and 19 are contradicting each other, that some of you will be put to death and you will gain your lives. I think the lives in verse 19 is eternal life. By your endurance to the end, you will, you will attain, you will receive true, eternal, lasting life. So having set then a better foundation about how to understand the destruction of the temple, then Jesus gives specific instructions about when the temple's destruction would happen, when it would be imminent. Notice first, though, he does not, he does not immediately jump to the, to the when and the what will be the sign, but he talks about how they should live and act as they go through this time of suffering. But he does give them some specifics. Verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So verses 8 through 19 describe what will occur before Jerusalem's destruction. Luke now describes here in verses 20 through 24 the destruction itself. We know historically now as we look back on the destruction in 70 AD that this is exactly what happened. As the Roman forces came and, and surrounded the city of Jerusalem and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And it was so horrible and it was so bad and so terrible the people did atrocious things even to one another as they went crazy, as they suffered. Even those who should be in the time of life of greatest blessing and joy, the pregnant and those who are nursing infants, that would now be a greater difficulty for them. And notice all of this would happen to fulfill, verse 22, all that is written. Like this destruction of Jerusalem, this destruction of the temple, this rejection of the Israelites in totality, not individually necessarily, would come from non-Jews, it would come from the Gentiles, and it would come as a judgment of God. In fact, you might remember about a month or so ago as Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. We looked at that in the text in Luke. Jesus weeping over the city about how he longed to gather Jerusalem together, to gather the Jews together as a, as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not, Jesus says. And then Jesus goes on to describe the judgment that would come because they rejected their Messiah. And now again, he's telling them, this is going to happen according to plan. You rejected the Messiah, and therefore you will reap the consequences of your rebellion, of your sin. 
This is the same theme that Paul would pick up on in Romans chapter 11. The rejection of the Jews, meaning salvation now to the Gentiles. Notice this will be the way of things for the Jews until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Verse 24. And I take that to mean this, this is how things will be until the time or the, the season of the Gentiles comes to an end, till it, till it comes full. And I would argue that we're today in 2023 living in that, in that span right there. We have not yet reached the time when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's the same thing Paul talks about in a little more detail in Romans chapter 11 where he talks about at the end there being a great ingathering of even Jews who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we're still a part of the, in the time of the, the, the hardening that has come upon Israel. Again, not that there are not individual Jews who the Lord is saving and opening their eyes to his grace and the wonder of the gospel that's happening frequently. But the Jews are also being judged right now. This season of the Gentiles where now salvation is available to non-Jews who trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. So this then brings us to the second movement of our text. First movement, again, was the temple's destruction and the judgment of the Jews. The second movement here is Jesus' return and the salvation of the faithful. So we're kind of now moving from what happened in 70 AD. Jesus now says, this is how it will be until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And now he's going to talk about what happens after or when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, a time that we are waiting for and longing for, and that is Jesus' return and the salvation of the faithful. Notice the subject even changes from the temple in verses 5 through 24 now to Jesus in 25 through 36. Isn't it kind of the Lord Jesus Christ that even though the people had asked Jesus about the temple's destruction, Jesus doesn't just give them the bad news about the temple's destruction. He also gives them the good and hopeful news about coming salvation. And there will be lots of uncertainty, he tells us, before he returns, look at verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So there will be lots of uncertainty in the world before Jesus returns. And then Jesus will return. Verse 27 tells us that Jesus' return will be evident and visible. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. His return will be evident. It will be visible. And Jesus' return will be with power and great Glory, again, verse 27, coming in the cloud with power and great glory. So things will get bad, but then Jesus will return, and it will be visible, it will be evident, he will return with power, he will return with great glory. He's not 
going to return as a baby because he's no longer a baby. He's a man. And he will return with power and great glory. And so what should these truths then do in our heart? Well, Jesus addresses that in verse 28. It's almost like he's, he's telling us, this is how you should respond. Verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The, these things in verse 28 I take to mean the, the time of uncertainty and perplexity, the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear about what is coming on the world, just a general kind of dysfunction that breeds worry and anxiousness and uncertainty and an unsettledness. And we don't have to look around very hard in our world to see so much of that today. Jesus says, when you see all of these things happening, beginning to take place, here's what you ought to do. You ought to lift your head and straighten up because your redemption is drawing near. I'm fascinated, as so many of you are, by World War II. I'd love to read books on World War II and watch documentaries on World War II. One of the fascinating things, reading testimonies and accounts of those who maybe were in POW camps during World War II or suffered in concentration camps during World War II, is at the end of World War II, near the end, when the Allies were, were approaching and, and were well into Germany, and the days were numbered for the Nazi regime, and those in the POW camps talk about how they could hear far off the artillery of, of the Americans and the British and the, the French and the Australians. They could hear the Allies approaching. And as they approached, the, the noise got louder and it, and it seemed to cause a greater and greater level of chaos among the guards and among the Nazi soldiers and among the German people around them because they realized that the end was coming. And yet at the same time, although it was causing this, this greater sort of fear and anxiety and uncertainty among those people, for those who were prisoners of war, those in the concentration camp, it brought greater and greater joy and expectancy and almost bred excitement. Because they knew that although the chaos was growing, at the end of the chaos, there would be friendly faces and they would be freed and liberated. I think that's precisely the point that Jesus is making here. Things are going to get worse. There's going to be increased levels of uncertainty and anxiety and fear and dysfunction in our world. And even as that's happening, straighten up and lift your head because you know your redemption is drawing near. You know that at the end of all of this, you will be freed. So Jesus gives then an answer or an example from horticulture. World War II hadn't happened yet, or maybe he would have used that as an example. And this is better because Jesus gives this one. Verse 29, he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and at all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves, and you know that the summer is already near. And so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Like, you know how to read the size of the plants? So apply that same thing to the situation and the cultural context around you. 
as you look at this dysfunction, as you look at things breaking down, it doesn't mean we rejoice and we celebrate in that. It doesn't mean we don't try to actively work to be light in the midst of darkness. But it means deep down inside we know we're just one day closer to Jesus returning. We're just one day closer to our rescue. Verse 32 is, is, can be a difficult verse to understand and interpret. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Some have taken that, the, the word generation there to refer to the specific people Jesus is talking to. It could mean that. Um, it also seems to, to be some good evidence that the generation there is, is referring to this present time period of humanity and what it looks like for people living in this world, this period of, of the times where the times of the Gentiles is not yet fulfilled. That's a generation, don't think literally like three generations ago was my great-great-great-grandparent, but like this generation of time, this the generation in which we live. Either way, the, the point I think more important for us to see here is what Jesus says in verse 33 which is the certainty of his return and the certainty that this will happen this way in fact he says that his words have more weight than even heaven and earth heaven and earth verse 33 will pass away but my words will not pass away we tend in our culture, right, to think that words are shifting, which is why we don't even like to take verbal testimony. We, if we want something, we want it written down, right? Like you buy something, you buy a car, you buy a house, like you can't just be like, yeah, we, we verbally agreed on this and now it verbally belongs to me. No, it has to be documentation. And Jesus says, it's not like that with my words. Heaven and earth itself will pass away. My words will remain. The ESV study Bible note here is helpful. Jesus, it says, emphasizes the permanence, certainty, and truth of his words and his teaching. More permanent, in fact, than even heaven and earth. This applies to all of Jesus' teaching, but specifically in this context to his teaching about the certainty and truth of his return and the events leading up to all this. So in light of Jesus' return, in light of all that surrounds it, how should we respond? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us here that in light of Jesus' return, we should be ready. We should pray. We should not lose heart. Look at verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Like, don't be weighed down by drunkenness and dissipation and the cares of this life. Because if you're, if you're distracted by those things, then the day that comes, and it will come, Jesus says, it'll come on everyone, verse 35, that day will come on you like a trap. It'll, it'll come on you more, more like the, the Nazis hearing that day coming in the day of liberation, a day of judgment, and not a day of celebration. For those that are not ready, so stay awake. 
so that that day will not come as a trap, but that day will come with relief and joy. Like at last, Jesus has returned. When we, when we see him, when we hear him, our response will be, thank the Lord. So we should pray. We should pray that we remain strong in the face of opposition to the faith. We should pray so as to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. We should live in light of that. In the next breath, I may be standing before Jesus. How would I want my last few moments on this earth to be? And don't lose heart. We see the chaos, we see the dysfunction, we see the uncertainty around us in our world, in our own hearts, in our homes, in our lives, in our government, in nature. Just don't lose heart. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. My words won't pass away, and here's what's going to happen. Things are going to seem to get worse, but I will come back. So let's go back to that statement I gave you at the beginning that I said was going to kind of guide our time together. Let's revisit that for just a moment, and let's apply those kind of three words of warning, readying, and reminding to this specific text. Again, Jesus is preparing, remember, his followers for eternity by warning us about things that won't last, readying us for the hardships to come, and reminding us of the superior worth of God's salvation. So first, Jesus here, as we have seen, has warned us about the things that won't last. That was obvious for the Jews because Jesus is warning them about their confidence and their trust in the temple. He was showing them that you are misplacing your trust. You're misplacing your confidence because this is all going to be destroyed. It's all going to be torn down. This will not save you. The old covenant came to an end. In fact, it came to an abrupt end and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It became obvious to all. As we've seen already, as we've made our way through the book of Luke, it's not as though Jesus leaves them without an answer and without hope because he demonstrates to them that he is the true temple, that he is the true sacrifice, that all who trust in his perfect sacrifice for sin, dying on the cross, shedding his blood, rising from the dead, that all who trust in him will be saved, will be cleansed from our sin, That Jesus is able to do what the blood of bulls and goats, millions of them for hundreds of years, could never fully and ultimately do. Jesus also here is warning even us in 2023 about the things that won't last. Because it is oh so tempting, isn't it, to place our confidence and our trust not in maybe a, a temple or not even in a church building itself. but to place our confidence or our trust in our own morality or in the fact that we, we're pretty much a better Christian than someone else we know or our confidence and our trust in, in our finances or in our job or in our home security system or in our, our healthy eating habits. You see, we too have the very real danger of placing our confidence in things that will not last, that will crumble, that will fall, that will not be left upon another. 
I think this is a careful reminder and a kind reminder from the Lord. It's a, it's a warning, lest we put our confidence in things that won't last. Secondly, notice Jesus is also, he's been readying us for the hardships to come. If you think, you know, I've been around CCF a while, and it seems like you, you're always talking at CCF, you're always talking about hardships and trials and being ready to suffer for the cause of Christ. It's not because we're morbid, <laughs> but it's because I, I think as, as pastors, elders, there, there's a conviction that we have that most of us have lived our lives, especially in this culture, in this country, in a very abnormal way, meaning that the, the norm of Christian history is that Christians are persecuted and suffer for their faith. Sometimes at the cost of their lives. Often at the cost of their lives. But almost always at the cost of friendships and relationships and jobs and homes and financial status. And, at the same time, Christians in most of the rest of the world still live in that same way. And because most of us, if you're like me, have grown up in a somewhat utopian, abnormal Christian culture for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, we seem to think that our abnormal is the normal. So that when the normal comes, and I, no prophet, but I have a feeling that someday in time, even in our own country, maybe even in our lifetime or our children's lifetime, it's going to be really hard to live as a Christian. Persecution will be really real as it is in so many other parts of the world. We want a church to be prepared, to be rightly thinking and expecting this. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is readying us, even today, even in 2023, even in comfortable Ohio, for the suffering that comes for the sake of Jesus Christ. I read a quote one time. I would love to remember who said it, and I don't, so I'll just say that I said it. Christians throughout so much of church history have lived for fear at the edge of the sword. And we, in our current cultural context, live Christianity for fear of the raised eyebrow. Right? Like someone online might not like what we say or may disagree. Or someone out in public may hear that we're a Christian and equate us with some sort of poorly behaving Christian that exists in our society and think we're like them and so we're, we're so afraid of the cause of Christ and we, we count that as suffering for the sake of Jesus. I think Jesus is readying us for the hardships to come. This, as I said this past week, um, Pastor Taylor and Nick led, led a team um, of us, a group of us uh, to to see the ministry and to do some teaching and just to experience the work of God through one of our missionary families in France. As we were there, we got to hear the firsthand testimony of a, of a true hero of the faith, a brother who, for the cause of Christ, has, has lost friends, has lost family members, has lost a spouse, is unable to return to his homeland because he'll be killed for his faith, and yet to sit and to hear this brother, a giant of the faith, share his story and the, joy, the glories of Christ. There wasn't one ounce of, well, you know what, I've given up a lot for the sake of Jesus. 
the consistent refrain was the greater joy of being new in Christ and united to Christ and set free in Christ and that have an inheritance in Christ that nothing else can take away. Which brings us then to our third and final kind of application point this morning, and that is that here Jesus, once again, is reminding us of the superior worth of God's salvation. Like what motivates someone to have that kind of sacrifice? What will motivate us to live lives of radical sacrifice and obedience and joy and boldness in the Lord to be willing to suffer whatever comes? What motivates that? Answer, a confidence in the superiority of what is on the other side of sacrifice. Which is a reminder of the superior worth of God's salvation. Like we may die for the sake of the gospel. And if we don't, our friends may die, or our children or our grandchildren may die for the sake of the gospel before Jesus returns. But by enduring faithfully to the end, we gain life. Jesus says it's worth it. And so we pray and we don't lose heart. We remember that Jesus has promised to return, that this is not the end, that this life as we know it is just a vapor. Just here and it is gone and compared to all of eternity. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing about our assurance this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come what may, our confidence in our great Savior. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you this morning for your word which is living and active. And I pray that you would apply it to our hearts. And pray, Lord, that you would illuminate through your Holy Spirit the things in our lives that we are trusting in that will not last. For so many of the Jews, it was a temple. For so many of us, it's finances or it's our health or it's our job or it's another person. We find our identity and our confidence and we put our hope in these things that are fading. Father, I pray that they would, our hope, our confidence, our joy would be placed in you. Father, Thank you for the reminder that we will suffer, that the Christian life is not meant to be lived easy, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, but you have called us to pick up our cross and follow you. And so even as we experience the, the, the cool, refreshing joys of being united to you, your son, through his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, at the very same time, Father, we live in a world that has declared war against you. So I pray that we would be winsome and gracious and long-suffering and loving and forgiving and patient and bold, remembering the superior joy that is ours in you and the superior joy that will come when your son returns. That is our assurance. Our assurance is not in who we are. Our assurance is that we are united to Jesus. Thank you for that hope this morning. Bless us now as we sing these truths from our heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.